This is the Pause and Reflect podcast with Haley, Sean, and Scout. And this week, about a, about a week ago, we went to the library, and you got about five different dog books out. Yeah, not about five. Exactly five. Exactly. Five. Yeah, five exactly. Almost six, but I put one back at the last minute. I was trying to ration myself. <laughs> You've read two of them so far. I have. And they're pretty scientific-y dog books, but also some stories about the author and their personal journey with dogs. Yeah, yeah. I think the second one aims to be more scientific than the first, but they both had a lot of references, you know, clearly cited different studies. The first one was from 2005, and the second one was from 2011, so, you know, some changes in animal cognition research and that sort of thing over over the years between. Um, but yeah, kind of a mix. Yeah, and I guess that got us talking about the way people write books, the way people talk about dogs and kind of the mix between the science and some of the magic of dogs and then getting into some of the the ways people talk about dogs that are sort of mystical or folky or not really that realistic. Yeah, yeah, there is what I call folk nonsense. I got that term from Franz de Waal. I believe it was in the intro of Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are. It might have been in Mama's Last Hug. One of de Waal's books, um, he was talking about, you know, things kind of delving into folk nonsense and that not being productive when we're talking about animals and the ways that we live with them. But on the other hand, I sometimes see other people trying to distance ourselves from non-human animals so much that it's almost like they're, you know, they're kind of like erasing the intensity of that bond that we can feel, particularly with dogs. I mean, dogs are a special species. I'm not just saying that because I feel it and, you know, that's what I like to think. Like, we have some really fascinating research about how they respond to humans and the fact that, you know, of all the species we've domesticated, we share this this truly special relationship with them. So it's really important to me to honor that, to embrace that. Like, I'm not interested in the type of writing that just acts like dogs are robots or just, you know, dumb stimulus response machines or like we're so distant from them. But yeah, I'm also not a fan of the folk nonsense that's a little bit too, you know, like Lassie-esque for my take and puts unfair, unrealistic expectations on our pets. Yeah, like, so I guess on that folk nonsense side, what do you... What kind of things do people say? They talk about, you know, how their dog can read their mind or, you know, Lassie knows that somebody fell in the well and ran two miles to get help. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I think that because we have such intense emotional bonds with our dogs and because, you know, there is so much merit to that relationship, I think it's easy sometimes to feel like our dogs know or understand more than they do. And that isn't to say that they don't understand a lot because they do. I just think it's important that we try to think rationally because otherwise we risk putting some really unfair expectations on them. Um, Like an example that I've heard, you know, even just growing up with dogs is like dogs having this sixth sense and like dogs know when you need them to be serious and you know, like they just know exactly what you need or if you need help, they'll run to get help and all of these things. And like, I don't necessarily think that all of those things are entirely untrue or have to be problematic, but I've sometimes seen them used in ways where it's, you know, if you expect that your dog knows when you need them to be serious and you expect that your dog knows when you're sad, like if that's some an expectation you really internalize, well then if your dog is all 
hyped up after you lose a friend or something horrible happens, it's easy to be mad at them and to feel like, well, you're supposed to know better. Like you're supposed to know what I need. Mm-hmm. And that's not really fair. Um, or, you know, examples like, like people thinking that their dogs understand everything that is said to them. Like, like I've definitely interacted with some people who think that dogs just completely understand English. And we can talk about what we're learning over time about language abilities of non-human animals. We can talk about, you know, clearly teaching an association between a verbal sound and in a picture or an action that takes place, you know, like how Scout knows that middle is, is the cue that indicates going between my legs. Um, but I think it's problematic when someone is like trying to have, you know, a full conversation with their dog on the street, like, <laughs> like Fido, he's not going to hurt you. Stop barking. Ah, you know better. Like that is not really fair to the dog either because, you know, your dog doesn't inherently understand those sentences and now you're sort of acting like they should. And again, it's easy to feel frustrated because mm-hmm. it's like, well, I told him he didn't need to do that and he still did it. And maybe there's something else you need to be doing to help your dog or uh-huh. figure out your relationship a different way. And sometimes that talking can be productive. Like, there are times where I will talk to Scout in a very specific way, and the words don't matter, but saying certain words makes it easier to have the tone that I want to have. So, like, this is not Haley knocking, talking to our dogs ever. Goodness knows I I talk to my dog plenty. But but when it's coming from that, like, sort of folk nonsense sphere where it's, you know, expecting your dog to be this mythical creature who perfectly understands everything and, like, Like, sometimes I I kind of see people imposing certain morals on dogs or suggesting that their dogs, like, automatically know what is good and what is right and what Mm -hmm. is pure. And on the one hand, part of me is like, yeah, like, like dogs feel like very pure, wonderful creatures. That's one of the reasons that we're drawn to them. Like, they lack a lot of the, the negative things that we associate with humans. Their, you know, like, like their otherness sort of takes us out of ourselves. It can be really, really beautiful. And then the ways that we're similar kind of reground us. Like, like that's delightful. But like Scout does not inherently understand human society and social norms. And like, she doesn't know that things are automatically good or bad. And she's brilliant. I think she's so, so, so smart. But like, I don't think that you know, if I had a heart attack in the living room, no, I, I don't expect that she'd figure out how to open the front door and go to the neighbor's house <laughs> and, like, bring the neighbor back over here, you know? Well, she'd definitely call 911. I'm sure she would do that. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone uh, learns that as a kid. Uh-huh. Yeah, but there is definitely a lot of magic about dogs, and it's easy to see where you can get a little bit carried away imagining that your dog knows more than they do or that they're... A different creature than they really are yeah yeah and i guess there's that other group like you mentioned before that's for some reason completely focused on you know dog as a machine or seems to just completely miss the point that there's something cool going on about having a dog in your house and that you can have a fun relationship with it yeah yeah like i had a couple of mixed feelings on dog sense by john bradshaw i all in all enjoyed it i'm happy that i read it there were a few things that didn't sit well with me but that happens with just about every book i mean we can't expect to agree with everything but one of the lines in there that he had that really really struck me was when he was talking about trainers imposing some very very strict 
regimens and rules mostly rooted in outdated dominance theory Hmm. um, that was based on studies of captive wolf packs. And that was kind of when we had that misguided idea of, you know, there being a really strict like alpha hierarchy, mostly built around physical coercion, blah, blah, blah. We know that that's not exactly how dominance works. Dominance is real. Dominance exists. It just is not quite in that way that we thought. Um, And so as he was describing trainers doing this, he said that it, it feels like they are taking away the joy of owning a dog and Mm -hmm. turning dog ownership into a challenge. And that did really stick with me because I've definitely, I've been exposed to some things that feel like that. There's almost like this aura of superiority sometimes, depending on the circle you're in, um, where some of the, some of the trainers, particularly in the social media space will maybe act like you know, if you don't follow all of their rules, not all of which are based in real evidence, at least from my current understanding, that you, you know, like you're not doing enough. It, it almost feels a little bit like an ego trip sometimes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I do believe that we should do hard things sometimes for the benefit of our dogs. Like, I'm not saying that dog ownership should never be a challenge. I'm not trying to say that it should be some mythical folky walk in the park like that's not what I'm trying to say, but I think it's totally remiss to act like you should, you know, fully distance yourself. Like, like one of the guidelines that he was talking about, it was from like an old school trainer's website or something. I don't know. And again, this was like a decade ago. Um, but one of them was like, you should not like stroke or pet your dog, like ever, unless it is, (laughs) you know, like in a defined training session as a reward. And it was just like, wait, like that's one of the things that humans enjoy about dogs. (laughs) And that presumably many dogs enjoy about humans. And like, why would we completely strip the relationship of that? Like that, you know, people will present that as a, as a challenge kind of. And, and there are, again, nuance always. There are situations where should we maybe think about restricting affection in certain contexts or considering what we might be reinforcing with our affection? Like, absolutely. Let's think critically. I'm not saying that we, you know, should just willy nilly all of the things all the time. But it just makes me so sad to think about, like, totally stripping some of the magic of the relationship. Like, I love when Scout comes up to me and presses her chin on my chest, and and I know that she trusts me, she feels safe, she's fully letting her guard down, she's going to fall asleep there. Hmm. Like, that's, that's beautiful. And I don't think it's unscientific of me to say that that's beautiful, right? Like, I think I can experience these intense emotions, kind of going back to taking it, too far to the extreme of the the quote-unquote folk nonsense i think i can experience the the marvel and the magic and the joy and i can feel all of those things while fundamentally staying rooted in evidence that we have and available research and respecting her as a canine i don't think these things are mutually exclusive absolutely i think there's sort of an old-fashioned idea about if you're a serious trainer you won't talk about loving your dog or you know, the ways that you show affection to them that seem you know, less serious needs to be focused on the training. And I think even now you you get a little bit of that or it comes into play differently. Whereas you have a bit of a different group now that I think is more popular on the internet too, where people see people who are really passionate about, you know, what they do, in this case, their dogs, but they're also very serious about training their dogs. And it seems like that makes much more sense as a combination. Like, you can talk, you know, one day about how much you love your dog and all the cool things you do to get together, and the next day you can talk about all the serious ways that you train and 
the next day you can talk about how those intersect and yeah yeah like they don't have to oppose each other i mean just this morning when we were out in the backyard playing with scout i was nerding out to you a little bit about reward placement and how that can affect her positioning in different commands you know like if we're if we always release her out of middle through the front by throwing the toy she develops the muscle memory of like forging ahead a little bit in middle and like i think that these things are fascinating like that's really cool to think about it's a little bit technical it's interesting to me it's fun to see how that plays out but then you know i can come inside and lie on the floor with her and be like half almost in tears because it's just look at this creature and she's (laughs) my friend and i love her and i think that those things can both be productive and they can be in balance like i've found that the the dog specific books and just the animal books that i like best have that balance that was what first drew me to are we smart enough to know how smart animals Mm -hmm. are by franz dewall because he you know he held on to these things that i think so many of us feel when we think about interacting with animals probably anyone listening to this podcast would call themselves an animal lover and we think about the intensity of the relationships that we can form and how marvelous it feels. But then DeWall went and, you know, he's determined to keep everything grounded in available research and not delve into that folk nonsense. And I, I just love, I love striking that middle ground. Like I love walking that line where these things can exist together. It would be unfair of me to act like Scout's a little perfect human and like she has an idea of my own moral framework and like she fundamentally, you know, like automatically knows how to function in human society. But I think it would also be unfair to, like, just think that she's some always self-serving, manipulative, old-school, dominance theory dog. Or to think that she's just, like, a strict behaviorism point of view stimulus response machine, right? Like, I mm-hmm. think all of those things would be unfair. And I think I just, that what's healthy is the, the like, reconciliation of all of them. Yeah, you'd think you'd want to have fun. Enjoy your dog. And sometimes... I guess I'm sure those people wouldn't say, I don't enjoy my dog, but you sort of wonder sometimes when they don't ever say it or when they act so much like, you know, their dog's this thing to be controlled or, you know, it's, there's just a goal to, you know, meet this next bar and then keep going. Um, So what are some of the ways that the authors you like do talk about the magic of dogs? They, like, first and foremost, they acknowledge their own emotions. They're they're self-aware of how things feel. They're willing to talk about how things feel and to say that those feelings are valid. But then they also question a little bit, like, where those feelings might come from and if, like, like, how much weight they should put on those feelings. I guess maybe I'm not phrasing this quite right. Like, I really love when these authors are willing to say, you know, like, this relationship feels deep and magical and there is something there. But they don't just stop there. They don't just say it feels this way. They actually dive in and they try to look at research we've been doing. They try to look at, you know, like, evolutionary basis of behavior. And they they look deeper so that when they feel that feeling, it's justified beyond just a surface-level silly emotion. I find myself a little bit put off by authors who go too far to the first route and like they just feel the emotion and it's like, you know, I feel like Sally the Golden Retriever knows what I'm thinking and so I'm going to assume that she knows what I'm thinking. Like that bothers me a little bit as someone who considers herself a dog nerd and it's really important to me to try to 
be fair to Scout and my expectations of her. I'd like to understand her as a canine. Like, like those are big values for me. So, you know, I'm not thrilled when I hear someone just being like, it feels this way. And so this must be true. Like, Lassie knows that Timmy fell into the well. And Lassie is this glorious creature who understands how human society works. And so she's going to go fetch the person. Like, I don't love that. But I, I get just as irked when it's in the other direction where it's, you know, like a strict behaviorism point of view, like the dog is only doing that thing because it was previously reinforced and the dog does not actually care about you as a fellow creature at all. And so I love when authors can strike that balance. Like I love, um, I, I really like that in Patricia McConnell's book, actually. And her, and her book was older. I mean, it's, it's coming up on 20 years old now. So I'm not saying that every word in it was something I like fully endorse and we have some training philosophy differences and all of that. But I thought she did a good job of opening most of her chapters with like a pretty personal, like it almost read like fiction writing, except it was about her life with her dogs, like mm -hmm. sort of a memoir, like narrative-esque of a, a moment that she shared with a dog that felt really deep and really salient to her. And then in the chapter, she would dive in to research different things that could have created the situation at hand, like some of the more technical things. And I thought it was this great balance that honored the intensity of her bond with her dogs. I mean, I was <laughs> sobbing in that last chapter, the, mm. the one that talked about the grief of losing a pet. I had to put the book down and just say, nope, not right now. And so she, you know, she did this fantastic job of honoring the intensity of the emotional experience that we can have as dog owners, as dog lovers, but she didn't let herself get totally lost in you know, just like the feel good stuff. She, she wanted to stay true to mm -hmm. understanding who our dogs are. And at one point she even said, you know, just because something feels good, like I think she was recounting a story of dogs who were in a car accident and they did, you know, the accident happened like a half mile from someone's house and the dogs ran that half mile to the person's house and were making a bunch of noise and ended up sort of leading those people to where they could see the car accident. So there were, you know, different people felt different ways about the story. Some people were thinking it was purely chance, like the dogs were simply scared, nothing but scared, and so they were making noise and it was just an accident, you know. It's reported that the one dog like grabbed the neighbor's sleeve and was tugging on it and they were like, that might be how that dog greets every person it's ever met. Like they were, you know, some people mm -hmm. were sort of discounting every element that felt calculated. Other people were going really far and being like, the dogs clearly knew she was in grave danger, and so they came up with this plan, and they knew that the most effective route would be to go to this house nearby and, like, acting like it was some really coordinated thing. <laughs> they have Google um, Maps out? Yeah, yeah. And she was, like, you know, she was expressing a sentiment that I probably, I feel like I align with, that the truth is likely somewhere a little bit in the middle, like, it's very doubtful to me that the dogs coordinated a plan and, you know, like, the, the Disney animated dog idea where it's like i know my friend is in danger and here's my process to, to save it it's also unlikely that the dogs didn't care about their owner at all you know like they probably did recognize okay like this creature who i live with who i i have a bond with is acting very very weird is not responding to me at all that's unusual you know like kind of a balance um and i i liked that as mcconnell was talking about this she said that she would like to believe the really feel-good explanation. Wouldn't we all like to believe the feel-good explanation that when we're hurt, our dogs understand how hurt we are, you know, can, like, think rationally about it and care so deeply about us that they'll do anything to save us. Like, that feels warm and fuzzy, right? Um, and she talked about how the fact that something feels good, like, the fact that it feels warm and fuzzy, does not inherently mean 
that that thing is unscientific or is the wrong explanation. But it is a sign that we should look a little bit more critically about the situation and try to make sure that we're seeing it rationally. And I, I liked that approach. I liked that she was saying, just because something feels good doesn't automatically mean it's untrue. I think that's a good point. Like there are a lot of things in my relationship with Scout that feel incredible. And then as I do dive into the science, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, like this is why, like dogs are so great at picking up subtle human body language cues and things like that. Like, you know, that feels magical to me when I'm interacting with Scout and I can like raise my eyebrow at her and she has a response to it. And learning about the science made that feel even, even better. Right. So like that was an example of something that felt good that as I dove into it, it was like, oh yeah. Yeah. I think that's totally right. But there are times where when something feels really, really good to us, maybe we should take that as like, okay, let I, I would like to check myself just to make sure that I'm not going down this totally mythical route. Yeah, I think some of the magical thinking that's not true can feel really good at first, or it's kind of a, you know, fun to imagine that your dog's this incredible creature, and, you know, that's definitely true, but, you know, only to an extent. But then once you do understand a bit more of the science there's sort of a deeper magical feeling that comes about it kind of reminds me of our relationship with love and stuff where you know originally the more shallow falling in love stuff can love be and stuff <laughs> whatever that is <laughs> and stuff <laughs> i'm sorry keep going it's like a you know big feelings you know magical all that but like the long-term love that you, you know, really need to understand more deeply and think about to build a relationship. Those feelings, you know, really are much richer and more lasting and more stable than some of the more shallow kind of magical feelings. And it's nice to have both. It is, but, yeah. You know, you, you really can't get fueled off just the magical thinking because at some point it's going to break down and let you down. Yep, and it can skew your perception of situations in a way that might be unhealthy, unproductive, or, you know, I've been throwing the word unfair around a lot, but I think that's really key, particularly when interacting with our dogs who don't have a shared verbal language to express how they're feeling and, and set expectations in that way. Like, you know, if I internalize some of these not so true ideas about Scout, and then I put these really high expectations on her, that can set us up for a lot of disappointment or you know, like thinking that she should be doing things that she just does not understand is aren't coming naturally to her. And if I think that they should come naturally to her or worse, if I think that like she's choosing not to do them because she actually hates me and she's spiting me, like that gets really dangerous. Mm -hmm. But I, I shudder to think of what it would be like to live with Scout if I completely dismissed all of our moments of connection. We do connect. We have a relationship. Like that is, I'm so confident saying that like she cares about me and we can get into the weeds and argue about exactly why and exactly how much and how that all works but like I'm very comfortable and confident saying that that dog in that other room cares about me a lot <laughs> and I care about her a lot and that's magical and wonderful and I love it and I want it for the whole rest of my life I just want it in a way that honors who she really is and honors what the relationship really is I'd like to be honest about it mm -hmm. Well, I feel like if you did the analysis for us on why we care about each other, maybe you'd get a little <laughs> ugly. You asked me earlier today what the best thing about being in a stable relationship yeah. is. 
to use each other. To use each other. <laughs> so silly. Because <laughs> uh, life is more fulfilling when shared. Yeah. But yeah, you can get into the weeds with any of it and skew it in all sorts of ways. Yeah, it's easy to lose track of the multifaceted nature of a dog, um, especially when you, you know, if you just start looking at stimulus and response, like you're not looking at their social behavior or, you know, a lot, like the behaviors aren't simple. A lot of the behaviors of a dog are very complex and you, it's hard to describe it uh, ultimately. And it's, you can definitely pick apart certain parts of it with different scientific studies and different ways of thinking about it but you know it's tough to describe the whole thing what a dog is in a couple of nice clean statements about you know how they behave and why oh yeah and we're still learning so much more and there are still a lot of you know sort of like outdated philosophies out there um, because science evolves right so like when those first captive wolf pack studies and papers were published it's not that anyone was intentionally lying and like trying to create this problematic narrative. That that wasn't the intent, of course. We've just since learned that that was not the best representation of what we were actually trying to learn about, and it's hard to have that shift sometimes. I I love what you said about you know like social motivations and dogs being social creatures. I think one of the things that struck me a lot that was expressed in both of the two books I read recently um, is, you know, dogs are very cooperative wolves are very cooperative i mean dogs are not wolves dogs and wolves share a common ancestor they descended from a common ancestor um we can look to other canine behavior like wolf behavior for some insight about our dogs but it's really important to remember that you know thousands of years of domestication have fundamentally changed a lot of things about our dogs so keeping that in mind but like wolves are very cooperative creatures within their family units dogs are very cooperative creatures domestication made them more cooperative with humans like all of these things and so i think that you know kind of like limiting them to a stimulus response machine or like acting like they're always a super manipulative creature seeking that dominance all of the time like not only does it just feel weird to me like having interacted with dogs like it's hard for me to understand why someone who professes to love dogs would want to view them in the way like like why they would latch onto that philosophy. I don't think it's very flattering to the relationship that we share with them. <laughs> I think that there's some ego associated with that. If you view a dog as like this manipulative dominant machine, then if you conquer the beast, you can kind of like pat yourself on the back for being a badass. Um, but also like that idea is just not, it's not logical based on what we know about the dog's evolution, our process of domestication, the way that, you know, they sort of like half domesticated ourselves. We also intentionally have done things to domesticate them further. Like it, it's not a logical line of thought either. And so there are a couple of different breakdowns here, you know, like I, th I think it's the balance of emotions and honoring what we feel and also being self-aware about what we feel and why we might feel those things. And then trying to figure out what those feelings are rooted in. And if it's fundamentally productive or unproductive, like there are some things about Scout that I do not know for sure but I'm happy to err on one side in my emotions or my thoughts because, you know, like the, the risk of being wrong is small and it's not going to hurt us. So like when I'm crying and I'm having a hard time and Scout really comes up and literally licks the tears off of my face and nuzzles in and stuff, 
I don't need to fully understand exactly why she's doing every step of that behavior. It's enough for me to accept that we share some connection and, you know, she has a response when I'm feeling that way. Like, like there, I'm not saying we have to overanalyze everything, I guess is the point I'm trying to make there. I just think it's important to consider, you know, are we risking drawing an unproductive conclusion in either of the two extreme of the spectrum that we've talked about. And if so, maybe let's take a pause, look at the information we have available and try to think a little bit more rationally about it so that we can ultimately help Mm -hmm. our relationship. Yeah. You think you've always kept a good balance? No, definitely not. (laughs) I think when you (laughs) sort of start getting into training, it's easy to sort of forget the whole picture of balancing out what you love about your dog with doing a good job training your dog or understanding what training is and what you want to accomplish. I think it's sort of, well, it's easy to get a little too focused, I think, on one or the other. Yeah. I think those things don't have to be at odds. I think that good training keeps in mind that social understanding of the dog and, you know, a lot of the whole picture. I think that that's that's what good training is. It's respecting the dog. It's keeping that that holistic idea in mind. But I agree. Like, for me personally, when I've gotten really into the technicalities of certain training or I I learn something new, it's easy for me to, you know, sometimes forget in the moment when I'm trying to execute a technique that Scout Mm -hmm. and I are these social animals, like, interacting and sharing this bond. It's easy to get so in my head about the exact thing that I'm trying to implement. It's easy sometimes to forget that she's an individual, even though I spend so much time thinking about that in other contexts. You know, sometimes you'll learn something and you'll be like, well, this worked for these dogs in this situation. And I'll kind of like forget a little bit to go through the steps to think about Scout as an individual and me as an individual in our life. So yeah, I've definitely not always kept a good balance about this. I've gone the other way too. I've absolutely had moments where I'm just like, this is magical and like... (laughs) Oh, yeah. I don't know. If it's really ever hurt us. But no, I think... <laughs> I mean, I think it's I, fun. It's, you know, I like when you're sharing about why you think Scott's magical. I don't necessarily have those feelings the same way you do. I, in general, find animals pretty magical and, you know, different things magical, but less so necessarily in Scouts, you know. Like, I, I don't come up to you and go, isn't it so magical that... You know, Scout does X, Y, or Z. Yeah. I mean, I knew a foster puppy for like four days, and when he put his little head on my on my neck right up, you know, our faces were right next to each other. I was just like, oh, Sean, this is the most beautiful thing that's ever happened. <laughs> I do think I had enough dog background knowledge, and I was focused enough on training and like really, really wanted to do a quote-unquote good job. We've talked about that at length previously, that... If anything, at certain points, I think I've erred too far on the side of, like, distancing myself from the mm-hmm. folk nonsense. I think, personally, when I was a kid, I really dove into the folk nonsense. You know, 10-year-old Haley was just like, dogs are pure and wonderful. And, like, again, that's not necessarily untrue. I just had some not-so-accurate perceptions, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. I think back to the training. When you start trying to learn something new or teach your dog something new, it does sort of put you into that challenge mode a little bit and even sometimes a little bit of a conflict mode of why doesn't my dog get this yet and you know it's easy to get a little frustrated and definitely that I think kind of blocks some of the like hey you're my friend and but you know that is also natural with a relationship that sometimes you're 
trying to figure something out with the other creature. And Yeah, you and I disagree sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I think in the context of dogs specifically, it has become really important to me to think about the fact that their lifespans are shorter than ours. And to make sure that I'm trying to think critically about the balance between immediate joy and bond and kind of like those marvelous feelings that we've been talking about and delayed gratification. I think that both of those things have a lot of merit and are really important. And as time has gone on, you know, especially as Scout continues to get older, it it is important to me that I'm working hard, setting us up for long-term success. Like, you know, I think there's the classic question, right? Like people go around asking sometimes when they're trying to be deep at a party or something, if you only had one day left to live, like if tomorrow was your last day alive, what would you do? Uh And a lot of people think that that question, you know, reveals what you should be going and doing, you know, I think to a degree, like it, it is important to think about those things. The idea of time being really, really short can help us come to terms with what we do want most. But I think the the fundamental difference missing there is that in that hypothetical situation, there is no tomorrow after the one that they're talking about. So you don't have to worry about the consequences of any of your actions. And so you don't have to think about any sort of delayed gratification. That question sets you up to just think about what is immediately gratifying. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, kind of that translates into the dog world for me, where it's important to me that I'm not just always prioritizing immediate joy in a moment over what might be best for us in the long run. But I I think sometimes it's easy to go too far on the other side where it's like, you know, I used to have this idea in my head a little bit that I couldn't have fun with Scout until her reactivity was fixed. I've talked about this a little bit on Instagram and our blog before. Like, it wasn't something I super consciously thought about. I had sort of just internalized it without realizing it, that, like, I couldn't properly have fun. Or, like, the fun didn't count as much. The fun wasn't as real. It wasn't as valid. Or, like, maybe I should even feel bad about the fun until Mm. she was fixed. And that was a really damaging mindset. It makes no sense because her life is short. And so, yeah, I want to be setting us up for success. Like... I'm not going to, you know, every time she begs for food, I'm not going to give her the food every single moment and reinforce all sorts of behavior that could make our life problematic and prevent us from taking her to a patio, you know, respectfully and like all of those things. It's important to keep that in mind. But like, I'm totally going to have fun with her, even if things aren't perfect, even if her training is imprecise or there are things we're still working on. Like, I absolutely want to feel the intensity of those moments of joy. And I want her to feel that too, because her life is so much shorter than mine. And yeah, that balance is just one I think about. I feel like that ties into the rest of this conversation, specifically in the training sense. Like sometimes Mm -hmm. training plans focus so much on the delayed gratification piece of that, that I think it can feel like you're in this boot camp of really, really, really hard work. And I'm not saying that that's inherently bad. Like, again, sometimes things will be hard. Not everything that we feel good doing with our dogs is something that is going to be productive. But we should probably question if, like, we're going through months of feeling like dog ownership is this chore and this challenge and, you know, conflict and we're always disagreeing. Mm -hmm. We should consider what percent of our dog's life that is and how we can maybe strike a little bit of a better balance. Yeah, and why you lost the magic, especially if you you really felt it at the beginning, like, here's this great dog, and a couple months later of this struggle, sometimes it's a lot harder to remember about that. Yeah. I do think, on the other side, like, if if you like your dog a lot, it's easy to get embarrassed, too, about... You know, if you're trying to train them and 
somebody sure. comes over and the dog jumps on them and you're like, oh no, uh-huh. I'm trying to teach my dog not to jump on people. You know, now everything's ruined. I'm so embarrassed. That... <laughs> or how, however I imagine people feel. I've taught you how to spiral in thoughts, haven't <laughs> I? That was, that was totally like a Haley thing. Like, oh no, Scout did this thing I don't want her to do one time. Everything's over. The world's ending. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. It's tough on the other side to... Sometimes it's like, yeah, just like any relationship, love, you know, the creature who, who they are now. And then also you can still be imagining where you want to go in the future and how you're going to get there. I think you can encourage growth while fundamentally accepting who someone is as an individual, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I don't think that that balance is necessarily easy to strike. It's certainly not obvious. I'm not trying to act like this is some super simple thing, but I think that that's kind of the goal, right? Like I want to respect scout as an individual i love right now that she is having so much fun ripping the stuffing out she's of her small stuff banana. Banana. the banana was already peeled but now she's peeled it twice <laughs> she sure is destroying it and i love that like you know i i love this dog i love who she is i love the personality that she's shown us and i also do want to help her grow and mm-hmm. you know continue to be hopefully more mentally healthy and and all of these things yeah i just I come back to balance so often in so many areas of my life, but it's really important to me here because I never want to lose the magic of feeling this bond, feeling this connection. But I certainly do see some things, like I can think of a few headlines from the Dodo. Are you familiar with the Dodo? Yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, I get served their things on Facebook a lot because, you know, clearly, Facebook. <laughs> clearly I express an interest in animals. And, you know, I've seen some dodo stories that are fine. I'm not trying to at the dodo and drag them through the mud completely. But I've definitely seen some stories on there where it's, you know, like, dog understood that housemate was sick and stepped in to do blah, blah, blah. Like, I can recall one video that I think was from there where people were sharing it with a a kind of folk nonsense headline of, like, dog recognized that its friend was having a seizure and like stepped in to keep it still and prevent it from hurting itself and if you watch the video it could also pretty reasonably be perceived as like dog was triggered by very strange behavior from housemate and pounced on housemate in a almost predatory-ish defensive looking way to stop the weird motion and it's like okay it might not be productive to have this romanticized view that the dog understood that the other creature was having a seizure. Like, maybe that could actually be dangerous if this means that people are going to ignore behavior that could have bad consequences down the line. Um, On the other hand, you know, I'm not trying to say that dogs never, never are aware of things. Like, dogs can sniff out cancer. There are documented cases where a dog started acting differently and consistently nosing an area on their owner's body and then it turns out that that's where cancer was growing like that blows my mind so i don't want to totally discount these sort of like sixth-ish sensibilities that we sometimes attribute to dogs but i i do think it's dangerous to romanticize to an extreme especially in the day and age of the internet where you have this information being spread and i think that that can have you know ripple effects Mm -hmm. so there's a mix, for sure. <laughs> so we can just talk about the science about why dogs are cool. That's nice. Yeah. Like how I couldn't build a dog nose if I tried. No, dogs are so cool. <laughs> they certainly have some incredible biological abilities. They're incredible. They're so cool. 
And they're so good at forming social bonds with creatures who aren't dogs, which, like, we kind of take for granted, right? Like, we, I don't know, it's so easy to just picture a dog and think about them living in a household with humans or cats or even, like, guinea pigs sometimes. And, you know, like, I would argue that human children look quite a lot different than adult humans and... I'm not even, I don't think that people are entirely sure if dogs see them as the exact same, like if, the, if they recognize like, oh, that small human is the same as the big human. Um, but in, in the larger animal kingdom, like that is wildly uncommon. Like this is so cool. This is fascinating. It's so cool. Their abil- ability to form deep social bonds with creatures who are not other canines is so cool. Like, we freak out when, you know, someone takes a video in a f- or a photo in a forest and it, like, kind of appears like the deer and the fox are sitting next to each other and might be friends, you know? Like, have you Make ever... a movie s- about it. Yeah. Have you ever seen those... I guess, like, maybe meme is the right word where people will... They'll take the screen grabs from some of the famous Disney movies mm. where it's, like, animal friends and then they'll find real-life pictures <laughs> where it's... You no, know, I haven't. Like, here's, here's Timon and Pumbaa in real life and that sort of thing. <laughs> We freak out when that happens because it's not common. Like, we get so excited when we see a picture that looks like it's documenting a friendship between a fox and a deer or whatever it may be because it's not something we see often. But that's so common with with dogs. They can be so social. They can develop these relationships. That's not to say, I'm not at all trying to say that, like, all dogs have to be indiscriminately social with everyone all the time. That's not how it works. But they can form these really strong familial bonds. And I think, like, I just think that's fascinating. It blows my mind. And they're so cooperative, like truly. Yeah, yesterday I planned to scout to tell her this toy was behind the couch and I was going to move something so she could get it. And then she ran over. Yeah, it's really cool. It's cool how we can subtly communicate things. And see, like that's a really great example where I found that moment a little bit magical in our household. I was like, this is so cool. Scout pays such attention to us. She's really great at following our pointing gestures. Like we built this sort of shorthand that we share together. Dogs also pretty naturally follow human pointing gestures. Um, Clive Wynn talks about that a ton in his dog is love book and like comparing dog puppies to wolf puppies and like some of the differences that we believe are biological, like like puppies are sort of pre-programmed, like predisposed to bond with humans and pay attention to us, which I just think is really cool. Um, but that's an example of something that, you know, if taken too far could become problematic. Like if I was expecting Scout to know what I mean and read my mind every time I point at something, I'm going to end up disappointed. And if I'm really not in the right mindset about it, I might even be getting mad at her or really frustrated with her because she's not doing the thing that I think she should be able to do. So I think that's a good example where it's so fun, you know, to think like, wow, you took this cue and it was really cool. Even, like, today on our walk when I gave her a treat and then she was kind of looking at me, like, for more treats and you were bouncing the ball in your hand and I just sort of, like, loosely gestured at you in the ball and right away she ran to you in the ball instead. I think that's cool. <laughs> like, I was absolutely telling her something and she at least loosely, you know, closely enough interpreted what I was telling her. I just think that's fantastic. Um But, you know, again, I'm not going to walk down the street and expect her to just understand what my random gestures mean without me thinking clearly about how I'm coming across to her and how she perceives the world and the associations that I've built. That balance. (laughs) (laughs) When do you think you lose sight most of the magic? When you get frustrated? Sometimes I feel like, even in our relationship, if we're, like, mad at each other or embarrassed or whatever... It can be easy to, I don't know, just feel bad about the whole thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, sometimes I feel... I think that's the common thread in my relationship with Scout and my relationship with you is when I start feeling bad about myself or like, you know, sometimes I'll feel like Scout's behavior is a reflection of me failing her or not being good enough and that can really make it not feel magical. That can make it feel super heavy and difficult. Um, It's also, it's it's a little bit narcissistic to think that everything she does is just because of me. Like, I'm aware that that's almost a paradox, for lack of a better word, like you know, to try to honor her as her own creature and then internalize all of this insecurity when things don't go quite right. Mm-hmm. Well, she sure is a special doc. She is special. I think that we do a pretty good job all in all lately of remembering how special our bond is. Like, it's so cool that canines and humans can interact the way that we do and communicate the sometimes rather complex things that we do and, you know... Sometimes I I just look around and it's crazy that she's not a wild animal. That's not really fair to say. But, like, there is this creature who shares my house who I cannot verbally communicate with in the way that I'm used to with my own species. And yet I'm totally confident that we trust each other and we care about each other. And I can make reasonable guesses about how she's feeling and she can sort of interpret how I'm feeling. And, like, that's Mm -hmm. just magnificent. That's so cool. Yeah, but how magic does Scout think we are? <laughs> <laughs> well, we just produce things out of thin air. You've asked that question before. Like, if you think that Scout thinks we control everything, specifically yeah. when we're in the car. Uh, yeah. Like, does <laughs> she... Just sitting there. Yeah. Or am I actually driving? <laughs> oh, those questions are so fun to think about. Yeah. Who knows? I bet she thinks we're pretty magic. I bet she thinks we're pretty magic. But, you know, she's not magic enough to know that my mother-in-law is visiting, and so that's why she's acting anxious mm. eight days ahead of time. That was one of the examples mm. in the For the Love of a Dog book that I thought was really funny. Someone, in all seriousness, truly believed that their dog was pawing at the floor around their water bowl because the dog knew that the owner's mother-in-law was visiting soon and that the owner's mother-in-law was a neat freak. And so the dog was trying to help the owner clean the house by pawing at the bowl. Wow. That is what the owner actually thought. See, that is what I would call folk nonsense. A little out there. A little out there. Uh-huh. It's too bad that we're not magic enough to pull a squirrel out of a hat. I know. One time that squirrel fell out of the tree on her face. Yeah. Yeah, that was a magical day for her. <laughs> she did not think I did that. I think she was pretty aware that the squirrel lost its footing. Or I so it appeared. So. Yeah. She also did not know what to do with the squirrel. No squirrels were harmed, I promise. We no. try to be pretty thoughtful about our squirrel chasing allowances. She's no killer. She's no killer. She's a wimp. But we <laughs> love her. Anything else on the, the balance of magic and embracing the intensity of our relationship while also, you know, staying thoughtful, staying productive? No. Just don't be scared to think the dog's magical. Yeah. And don't be scared to think about all the ways your dog actually works without losing the magic of it. Yeah. It's a good conclusion. Alrighty. All right. Bye.